Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm really happy to be talking to our first historian for the podcast, Dr. Megan Burke, who works on the history of food as well as some other topics, and who I'm fortunate to have as a colleague at UTRGV. This interview was recorded a few months ago, so let's hope that since then she's caught up on the deadlines she mentions at the top of the interview. I know I haven't caught up on the ones I'm talking about. Let me read Megan's bio. Megan Burke is an associate professor of history and the author of Fostering on the Farm, Child Placement in the Rural Midwest, which came out in 2015 and 2019 in paperback, and the new book, The Fundamental Institution, Poverty, Social Welfare, and Agriculture in Poor Farms, which is under contract with the University of Illinois Press, in which we talk about a little bit in uh, this conversation. She teaches food history, among other classes at UTRGV, and specializes in social welfare history in the late 19th and early 20th century U.S. Her recent article about feeding the poor at institutions was published in Food, Culture, and Society, and that's uh, the focus of today's conversation. She was also featured in a podcast for the Organization of American Historians about public health at almshouses, which you are allowed to check out, but only after listening to this. So now, here's my conversation with Megan Burke. How are you doing? I am doing all right. Um... I think I have crossed the bridge of semester burnout. I was really, really burnt out a couple weeks ago, um, ready for the semester to be over. And it's worse than normal. You know, I think we all hit that every semester, but mine seemed to be more severe. So I feel like I've crossed some sort of imaginary passageway, and I feel better now. So You've, you've come to peace with... Uh... Not that you yeah. fixed it, you're you're at rest with it. That's good. I just I couldn't see the I couldn't see the end. It it seemed to just be like pressing on, and I feel like our students are tired, and they're they seem to be dealing with you know compounding stresses, and mm-hmm. it's it, it's evident in what's going on in my classes, um, and I keep telling them like it's okay. I feel the same way. We like we're gonna get through this, but. Um, I was starting to doubt my own advice. <laughs> I was like, are we going to get through this? It's never going to end. And just, you know, the regular, I have a stack of fairly significant deadlines coming up and I'm starting to make some headway there, but it felt very ominous there for a little while as I was looking at my kind of work board and thinking like there are maybe not enough hours in the day for my brain to function properly for me to get all of this done. So well, I've work, rallied. <laughs> working on that and slowly making progress and getting it to a stage where you see uh, that, you know, you see a light at the end of the tunnel is certainly one strategy. I'll propose my way of doing it as an alternative, which is feel overwhelmed and avoid doing anything at all. <laughs> um, and just kind of, you know, like learn a new hobby, become suddenly obsessed with some obscure part of the internet and uh, devote a bunch of time to that and wait for deadlines to pass. And then a bunch of things just disappear. And then you can work on the like the two that are left. Nice. I am. I, I think I am too much of a type A personality for that. So I thrive with a, like a solid list and very stringent deadlines. But even I had to admit to myself and I had to admit this to my press. I was like, look, the stringent deadline that I set for myself is not going to happen. So everybody's, I think, you know, 
we're all flexing. Everybody's giving what they can and being generous. And I am appreciative. And I'm trying to pay that forward. Anytime I encounter anyone who needs something, I'm like, you know what? (laughs) We can do this. Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. I'm trying to be understanding for my students as well. And it's helpful that I'm also helping my kids with remote education. So I'm on both the student side and the teacher side right now. Yeah. But, you know, it's not just that things are hard, but also that people don't have never been in this situation before. So things are hard in new ways. So I'm trying to understand that people are also much worse at predicting now what they'll be able to do than they were in the past. But speaking of your uh, teaching, you're working on a, um, a history of food class that I know you teach pretty regularly. And am I right that you usually have um, like site visits or other kinds of service, like physical things in with that class in a normal school year? Yes. It was a very difficult decision to move the class online. I agonized about it for weeks over the summer. It is a very experiential class. Um, we do things, we make things, we cook together, we eat together. Um, because, you know, food history, food is about the social aspect as much as it is about the production and the labor. Sure. Um, but I realized that the things that I was fretting about, we weren't going to be able to do anyway. I can't feed students right now, even if we're in the same room. I can't ask them to pass around a butter churn. Um, There's just lots of tactile experiences that are not going to be functional for the short term at this moment. And so I thought, you know, if it's just about the content and it's about students getting to reflect on how food history kind of connects with their own experiences that we can do online and that part can be successful. And I think it's gone okay so far. Um, You know, I've, I've mentioned to them so that they know when there is something in class we would be doing, (laughs) you know, like I would be (laughs) cooking for them because I cook for them all semester long and we eat together. And then at the end they cook for everyone. Um, But very much on a budget, you know, there's, there is no limit to, how much of something you have to make usually or of what quality. So, you know, people made a pot of beans before and that's totally fine. Um, but those things we, we cannot safely do, even if we all got to be together in the room. So we're trying something new. Yeah. How do you, um, like what sort of stand-ins have, do you have for those kinds of experiential aspects of the class? I have rooted through the bowels of the internet to find interesting videos and sources to convey some of the things that we would normally do. Um, So there is a video series uh, done by a guy in Indiana who is really into recreating colonial and frontier Anglo-Indiana existence. So early 1800s. Uh, He has this weird dugout he lives in sometimes (laughs) and he's kind of recreated this frontier experience and he makes things. He, he doesn't just make food, although that's arguably the better part of the show, but he also does like handicrafts. So when something breaks in the kitchen, he tries to use a sort of like blacksmithy to figure out how to fix it. Um, So I, I grabbed some stuff from him, from him that I wouldn't normally use in class. Um, we watched someone else churn butter (laughs) because we couldn't do it together. Um, And I've shared recipes with them. So we have kind of a recipe board uh, that that way, if people are interested in picking up recipes from one another, they can do that, especially if a recipe kind of like what you're doing, uh, you know, if a recipe means something to someone or they just think it's interesting, then, 
you know, we can kind of all talk about it, but yeah. Yeah. Cause I, like you, I have food, like actual food be a central part of my philosophy of food class. Yeah. And I have students every time the class meets in a normal semester, uh, some student, you know, they take turns, sign up, bring some food that's meaningful to them, to the class. Um, something that they made or something that they purchased, depending, and they talk about what the food means to them. And then we share it and we eat together, partly because I find that, you know, students we've, I mean, it's our fault as educators, we've taught students that personal experiences and their own family background and knowledge that they bring into school is something that should be, you know, hidden away and they shouldn't necessarily connect what they're learning in class to uh, their own experiences. But we haven't taught them that about food yet. And so as soon as you start talking about food, everybody wants to talk about their grandmother or about, you know, what food actually does connect to them. And then also there's something to be said for people sitting together and sharing food, that that builds a kind of community in the classroom that you don't get other ways. And then it's easier to have harder conversations. Um, yeah. But this semester, I've tried to replace that by having people record videos about food and like sort of do a video presentation that they upload. And actually, those have gone so well. I'm going to keep them like when we come back and start meeting in person, we'll still share food, but I'm going to have them upload these videos because they, they've started to include things like, um, you know, talking to their mom, asking their mom on video where this food came from that they didn't know mm -hmm. or showing them, you know, actually getting the ingredients out of their garden. You know, there's there's a whole other by bringing it into their home, they're making this whole other second aspect to it that I think is quite, uh, it's, it's nice. So that, that's a good thing, uh, in all of these compromises that <laughs> you're making in class, it's nice when you can discover something that's actually a benefit. Yeah. I think I, I added a sort of a media assignment this time in, in replacement of an experiential assignment. And so it was just a very basic kind of a free for all watch something that is food tangential or food related and analyze it. Like, what does it say about cultural appropriation of food? What does it say about who's producing the food? Just walk me through the episode, but think about it. Um, and they did a really good job. I think I might keep that assignment. Um, you know, a lot of students watched a, f a very specific, like a chef based show, which mm -hmm. was fine. But I had one student watch an episode of Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, that's food, it I guess. It was fascinating, actually. Um, and what I learned from the student is that part of that show is about the sort of visual aspects of food, the way they've set up the storyline and the presentation of what's being eaten is a huge part of kind of like bringing the viewer in and not alienating them through this sort of feeling of like revulsion. Um, so it was really interesting that and everybody's interesting. were cool, but that was the one where I thought, well, I wasn't expecting this show to pop up, but this is fascinating. Nice. I might have to go look for some clips for that because the conversation about, um, you know, when we decide when something is food and isn't food is obviously mm -hmm. important to philosophy of food as a, uh, as a concept and like what it says about culture, you know, like we're the kind of people who eat this or we're the kind of people who don't eat this, but then also personal, you know, the number of people who become vegan or vegetarian and then quickly find that that non-vegan or non-vegetarian food is distasteful or not food mm -hmm. to them, you know, I think is quite interesting. Um, but yeah. You said one of your deadlines is with a publisher. What book are you working on? Uh, and it's a book about local social welfare. So the, uh, the article that I sent you that was from Food Culture and Society about uh, poor farms as an institution of both sort of social welfare care, but also feeding. Um, that is 
just one small component of a much larger project about the evolution of localized social welfare and how it eventually kind of builds into or contributes to the social welfare system that people in the United States are used to today um, in all of its sort of interesting anomalies compared to other countries that we kind of compare ourselves with. Right. So I've got, uh, it's a little long in the tooth right now. So I have, I have a few thousand words that need to be cut out before uh, we can race to the presses and start laying it out on the page. So that's a work in progress, but it's under yeah. contract. It'll be done here in the blink of an eye and uh, it will be nice to usher it out into the world. That's good. Yeah, I um, I'm definitely an overwriter. <laughs> I think I'm not. I think I don't want to write. And then once I start, uh, I realize I overshot the mark by you know a few pages. Um, but yeah, once the book, uh, once you have the book out, your new successful future blockbuster, come uh, back on the podcast and talk about it. But uh, today, I want to focus on that article that you sent along. Um, so can you before I, I have a bunch of questions about it, but before I get to those, just for background for the reader, uh, can you explain what uh, poor farms are historically in America? Yeah. So as it turns out, probably everyone is familiar with the concept of a poor farm, but in their head, they may hear of it as an almshouse or a poor house Um, in the United States, especially because our system of local welfare was adapted from the British system. Um, So people think of a kind of Charles Dickens uh, workhouse, dark, damp, um, dank, miserable place where you sort of keep the poor as punishment for their poverty. Mm-hmm. And what actually happened in the United States is, as, as it often is, is an amalgamation. So there were some workhouses and there were some very large, very imposing, almost penitentiary-like almshouses and poorhouses. But what was most common, especially by the 19th century and the late 19th century, so think like after the U.S. Civil War, was that counties were required to take care of their poor in some capacity. And a lot of counties in the United States were rural counties. They were farm-based economies. And so what they had available was land. And so they used that land as a way to not necessarily make people work for their care, but as a way for the county to be able to, at bare minimum, produce food for the people who lived at the institution. Um, And so it became kind of a vehicle through which um, we associate this idea of an almshouse as being this big, scary place. And truthfully, not all poor farms were nice. Um, there is a lot of diversity in the experience of people who lived in one. Um, but a poor farm is just an almshouse that is based on a farm. And there were lots of them. Um, sometimes it's hard to imagine the scope of the system. But by 1900, there were 2,700 poor farms or almshouses in the United States. Um, Most very small, most local, um, not serving the whole state, but serving a very small municipality. And most of them not housing a ton of people. So the majority of those 2,700 institutions had less than 50 residents. So it's more like a sort of unconventional family (laughs) than it is a giant sort of hulking, terrifying English workhouse. So, um, you know, you know, you're pointing out that one reason why those might have been instituted by counties uh, was just for financial reasons, because you could grant land without having to do much else, and it would reduce the cost of this thing you're responsible for. Um, But 
do you think there was also like if you you know looking at the literature on it that you've been doing the primary sources was there also some sort of um justification about self-sufficiency or the value of hard work or you know that there was some sort of uh redemptive kind of quality for them growing their own food or was it really just a financial kind of dollars decision it is really just a financial decision interesting counties talk a lot about um that the land is an investment for the county and you can see that play out in fascinating ways over the long term because by the mid 20th century as poor farms fall out of favor because there are programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid that are developing, but counties still often held that land. And so sometimes when people ask me, like, do you know if my county had a poor farm? I don't know because there were 2,700 of them, but I can <laughs> <Probably>. find out. <laughs> but I always tell people like, well, where is your county airport? Oh, what's well, out on the this and that and this and that. I'm like, okay, well, is there anything around there that like somebody remembers as like the county nursing home? Oh, yeah, the county nursing home's out there. I'm like, well, there was where your poor farm was. Because usually the county kept the land because they saw it as this long-term investment was good for the county. And over time, it it sort of evolved into whatever the county needed the land to be at that moment. Um, So a lot of times the county airport, um, the county animal shelter. uh, What else have I found? Uh, County mental health facilities are on poor farm land. Um, a lot of, there's often a cemetery there, unfortunately. Um, just some interesting like forms of county governance that if you, if you've ever wondered, you know, why is my county such and such office out here? (laughs) It might be because out there is where the poor farm was. And so instead of selling the land, they just turned it into something else over time when the poor farm closed. Um, so that's an interesting, it's very random interesting factoid about poor farms. But to get back to your question about the idea of redemption through work, what most poor farm administrators came to realize was that if you were able to work, if you were able to do any sort of self-sustaining labor, you did not go to the poor farm. Because even in the best case scenario, the poor farm takes away some of your autonomy. It robs you of some independence. You wake up when they tell you to wake up. You eat whatever they're serving. You spend your days kind of alone, but never actually alone. So you're lonely without being alone. Um, You are in an institution that is doing some heavy lifting for lots of different types of people. So people with uh, long-term physical disabilities, long-term mental illness, um, sometimes short, like, disabilities from a work accident or some other type of situation at home, um, women fleeing abusive marriages, uh, unwed mothers who are pregnant, all kinds of different people, um, senile elderly whose families just cannot take care of them at home anymore. So the poor farm is a clearinghouse for all of the people for whom other types of care didn't exist or weren't possible. So not Many people went there if there was a possibility that they could work and provide for themselves on the outside. Uh, What is true about working in a poor farm is that residents did work. Uh, They worked past the time. They do light chores. Uh, They might work in the kitchen. But what is most common is that when people are laboring at a poor farm and they live there, it's very often Um, the people who have some sort of cognitive disability, who are able-bodied but not necessarily entrusted to live on their own and self-support. 
So some of the largest poor farms that had working residents were also the poor farms that had the largest number of uh, nonviolent, they would have been labeled insane, um, or people with, um, you know, a physical disability that maybe kept them from doing full-time work where they earned money, but did not keep them from doing a day's labor at the poor farm. Um, so it's an interesting population of people at poor farms who are working and it does make them feel good. And they do talk about that it's satisfying and it makes them feel worthwhile and that they're glad they can contribute to their care, but it is not a requirement of care. Um, and so that's one of the sort of a great mischief of history that we get this idea that people were formerly forced to work for care Mm -hmm. And it has changed and altered and colored the way that people think about it today in terms of who deserves certain types of aid. Um, and people will frequently say, well, you used to have to work for care. It's like, well, actually, you know, you didn't. You didn't have to work for care. Um, but sometimes people did. Yeah. And I mean, not to be fully uh, Foucault in this conversation, but it's interesting that uh, people with uh, cognitive issues, you know, those that were labeled by their society as insane, that that was seen uh, like the salient part of them that was relevant for the county, for the state, was that they were unable to provide for themselves financially, not that you know it wasn't a fully medicalized model that they should be in a hospital, but that they should be in some sort of poorhouse. Right. And there are lots of different specialized institutions that develop in the late 19th century in the United States. Um, that take advantage of that. The, there are lots of um, places known as schools for the feeble-minded mm-hmm. um, that had work programs where people went there as children but also as adults uh, and were able to work and contribute. They sometimes made small wages, um, sometimes were hired out to other positions. And so there's some really interesting historical work being done in the field of disability studies that is really helping to open, I think, new avenues of research for um, how policy sometimes hindered people from maybe like reaching their full abilities um, because of how they were viewed by others instead of how they viewed themselves. Uh, And also speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, especially when families are right on that kind of knife's edge of poverty, it becomes sometimes very difficult to take care of family members that maybe need a little more energy or a little more time. Um, And so that is one of the leading causes of people with any sort of um, sort of cognitive or um, intellectual disability ending up in an institution is that family members either are not able um, or something has happened in the home that has required them to send that person out for care. Um, And so it's a complicated process. So, you know, you mentioned people nowadays maybe thinking, you know, the, the discussion of working to uh, pay for or reduce the cost of taking care of yourself as being uh, colored by these sorts of histories, even if people aren't actually aware of them. But uh, at the time, was there a conversation about worthy and unworthy poor? Like, was there a conversation about who deserved or didn't deserve particular help from the county or to be housed in these places? Yeah, there's a really vigorous conversation. It's just interesting that at what level that conversation is happening. So most of the day-to-day sort of care and support and the financial aspect of taking care of folks like this and feeding them and housing them is done locally at a county or a township, a municipality level. 
So that's where the sort of finances and day-to-day work took place. But the conversations that are happening tend to be well over their pay grade. Um, So the conversations are happening nationally at the state level with people who are not necessarily active in the day-to-day work of taking care of people, managing a poor farm, for example. Um, So there's this it's almost like watching two lines of missed communication where reformers have these ideas. Many of them are based on urban situations um, where they go in and they see poverty. And so they see behavior, you know, they see licentiousness, they see drunkenness, they see, they see these things and they sort of project what they see in that situation across the country. But Things are very different depending on what region you're in, depending on where you are physically, what your demographic is. And so they're having these conversations about who's worthy and who isn't. Um, They're making decisions about direct aid. So who gets their groceries paid for? Who will get a rent supplement um, based on worthiness? What's interesting is that when you get down to the county level, the people who would maybe be unworthy of charity aid or private money in a place like New York City or Chicago, they're still allowed in the poor farm. (laughs) There's sort of like just open door and it works both ways. The door opens and it, you can leave, you can come in. The real requirement at the local level is that you needed to be a resident of that county or that town. And they took the residency requirement fairly seriously Um, So if you were just kind of wandering through a place and you needed care, they may try to send you back to the place where you last had actual legal residency. But beyond that, they may say like, oh, you know, this person hasn't, you know, this person is a drunk, but we're still going to let him in because otherwise he's going to freeze to death. And so the judgment calls are different and it's interesting to watch the conversations happen. Um, it's one of the things that micro history or local history is good for. There are lots of things to like about it. Um, but one of the things that it often does is it shows that, you know, the conversation that's happening in one place that seems very influential, you know, big names are talking about this. It's like, well, that's great that they're talking about it, but what is actually happening? And what's actually happening is different than the conversation. So lots of discussions about, People with drinking problems, um, unwed mothers, um, various sort of behavior issues that are judged as being unworthy. Um, Men who are viewed as unwilling to work to support a family tend to be viewed as very unworthy. But at the poor farm, if you show up and you are a resident of that county and you seem like you are homeless, then the door is open for you. That's fascinating. Although I imagine the residency requirement became a problem at some key moments like post-Civil War or during the Great Depression when there was, you know, a lot of migration of people back and forth, you know, across the whole country looking for work or just to get out of the South for African-Americans or, you know, other sorts of social forces like that? It's hugely problematic. And there are these um, sort of troughs in U.S. economic history. The 1870s is a good one. The 1890s is another one. The 1890s was the worst recorded depression in the United States until the 1930s. So when you see those those dips happen, people not only start to kind of move, but they also are in need of more assistance than normal. And so it strains the system. There is not any state or federal money that goes into local welfare until really the 1930s. So counties are funding 
whatever their relief plan is, they're funding it themselves. And so when you have an extra 100 people who need groceries, when you have an extra 200 people that need a doctor's bill paid, it doesn't take much to strain a system in a county that's not very big to start with, which is, again, a majority of U.S. counties are like that. Um, and so you really see them start to figure out who the hell are you, where do you live really, and can we send you back there? And they they spent kind of a lot of money to send people back to where they thought they belonged because it was viewed as a long-term savings. So there are lots of records where you can see they're discussing like, oh, we're going to send so-and-so from Indiana back home to Pennsylvania. Um, I found a couple really interesting ones from the Dakotas uh, where in North and South Dakota, a lot of Scandinavian immigrants settled. Mm -hmm. They sent some people back to Norway, <laughs> which is you know prohibitively expensive. But they were looking at sort of like how much will it cost us to take care of this person potentially for years? And is the the boat ride back to Europe cheaper? And if the answer is yes, then there are not a ton of those cases. But when they pop up, they're amazing because you just don't think about and it's not a forced deportation per se, which happened before the Civil War a lot. Um, poor people from Ireland were forcibly deported back yeah. to England or back to Ireland. But it's a sort of willing, like, do you have family back in Norway that could take you? And if the answer is yes, then here's your ticket. It's paid for. Here is like some extra clothing for you. And, you know, we'll catch you later. And they did, so that's what they did. So they do, uh, they do really the residency thing is important. Yeah. Uh, Norway famously not sending their best. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. It shows the, the both the promise and the danger of hyper-local responses to problems like poverty and hunger. Because on the one hand, because they're local, uh, counties can be responsive to actual needs. They can know the people that are in trouble and what their life situation is. They can ignore some maybe high-minded speeches that have been going on in Washington or in big cities that, uh, you know, don't actually reflect the needs in the area. But then communities can also close around people. You know, they can try to force them out uh, when there's a short need. And if you happen to be from a place that doesn't have good um, resources, then, you know, you're stuck with poor resources. Like you were saying, there's quite a lot of difference in uh, the quality of these different farms. There is a, an enormous... Uh, diversity of experiences. So that that is true of everything from the quality of the food that they put on the table to the quality of the buildings themselves that people lived in. Um, it's, it's very true that, uh, you know, in the South, for example, uh, Texas is a good example because Texas, of course, has more than 200 counties, but only about a fourth of those counties ever opened a poor farm. Most counties in Texas just went without, um, and the counties that did have them uh, were not necessarily always known for providing good care, and that's very typical of um, all aspects of social welfare and institutional care in the state. Um, counties across the United States decided whether or not they were going to admit residents of color. So the exclusion of people of color is worse in the South, but you can never give other parts of the country a free pass. Um, so there are plenty of counties in the north where there appears to be in the records a noticeable exclusion. No one has said it, 
But when you look at the demographics of the county and you look at the poor farm records and you wonder, like, where are these people and why aren't they here? The answer is a pretty obvious, well, they're not allowed to be there. They're not allowed to stay here. Um, and if they are, sometimes they are sleeping in the basement or they're sleeping in an outbuilding. They're not allowed to uh, be integrated into the normal sort of population of the poor farm itself. Um, and so you can see different kind of layers of discrimination in poor farm records, and you can see different layers of care. But a good rule of thumb is that the poor farm itself is a good reflection of the county. So if the county is a prosperous one, they usually didn't want to embarrass themselves by providing a bad poor farm. And the same is true of the farm aspect. If it is a profitable farming or agricultural county, it is often the case that the farming part of that institution is well run, provides good food for the residents. Um, it does a good job. It's well managed because people very much saw the institutions of the county as a, a sort of like face for the county. Like it was it was one of the ways that you were sort of expressing whether um, the governance was good, whether it was a successful place to live. Um, and they did take that into consideration. So sometimes there are discussions about, you know, this institution, if there's something wrong with it, it reflects poorly on us. This is a, you know, this is not a credit to our citizens. This does not, you know, we are not treating people with sort of good Christian ethics and values. And so they do say that and they have those discussions locally about what their poor farm means in the context of their county. Um, but likewise, if people in the county are poor and the poor farm is taking in the poorest of those people um, or the most distressed at that moment, then often the conditions inside are not particularly good. There's always a criticism that people who are accepting any kind of relief shouldn't have things that are nicer than the taxpayers have. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes up in a number of ways, um, one of which is the sort of addition of running water and electricity to poor farms before farm homes in certain counties had those attributes. Um, obviously for a poor farm, you know, the cleaner you can make it and the easier you can make it to take care of a dozen or more people with different aspects of disability or sickness or, you know, whatever they have going on at the time is better um, but people got a little bit embittered about it sometimes and said, I, you know, I don't know why the poor people are getting plumbing when I don't have it at home, but I'm paying taxes. Um, so it's it's a discussion that comes up in a variety of interesting ways. Sure. W were there programs at these places or was it just, you know, sort of a warehousing of the individuals? Like I'm thinking about, you know, although it's a different uh, institution, Hull House, uh, you know, Jane Adams in Chicago, that was very... Uh, uh, food was a big part of it, but it had other kinds of programs that it was pursuing at the same time. There is nothing of the sort to be found. Um, there is, there is just a sort of like bare bones uh, employees. There's not a lot of supervision. Um, the employees that staff a poor farm, it tended to be a husband and wife team, uh, like a superintendent and a matron. And there are often some hired workers, sometimes domestics in the house. Um, there's usually a county doctor that will come by when people are sick. And there are farmhands, depending on how big the farm was. Um, but there is not a, a sort of resident outreach program 
or, you know, like today we would think of it as sort of an occupational therapy type mm-hmm. activity. Right. Um, it is not a place that focuses a lot on redemption or recovery. If you get better and you leave, that's great. And if you don't, that's also fine. Um, but there's not a lot of ministering to people. There's, there's not any of that sort of late 19th century uh, progressive era social gospel type behavior that you see in other places because it really is a very utilitarian space and the funding is public. And so they have to account for absolutely every penny. <laughs> right. And, and they, that, that stuff, like it got printed in the newspaper. Um, you could be very aware of what your local poor commissioners were spending on a monthly basis, as a matter of fact. So they did watch. Well, one of the, um, results of that that you discuss a little bit is attempts at reform of the nutrition that was being provided to people, uh, sometimes from doctors, like you were saying, the county doctors that would visit, and sometimes just from reformers, you know, social reformers. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of conversation that was happening? Yeah, there is a, there becomes kind of a growing awareness that people, people's health and their ability to self-sustain or self-support is connected. And if you are not eating well, you will not heal from an injury that maybe you've sustained at work and you may not be able to kind of get back on your feet as successfully as people would like. And a lot of people at poor farms leave. They come in because something acutely wrong has happened. And the intention is that when that has passed, whether it's unemployment or their house burned down or whatever it is, or a sickness, they can go when they're done. But if they don't get any sort of good food, marginal health care even while they're at the poor farm, the chances of them leaving and self-supporting again start to decline. And that will cost the county more money in the long run. So again, as a part of that kind of financial utilitarianism, they are trying to figure out ways that they can kind of relaunch people. But it's, you know, it's not so much a social program. It's just sort of a like, hey, can we have a more balanced diet? Um, can we stop feeding people with bad teeth a bunch of sugar? Can we just sort of make some basic improvements that will um, perhaps help someone who is sick recover faster? Um, so instead of feeding somebody maybe really heavy, dense meals of just meat and bread, maybe we switch to a soup of some kind that will have some vegetables in it. And so they make those recommendations with that in mind that not everyone who goes to a poor farm will stay there forever. And your chances of getting out increase when you have slightly better care. Um, but it really speaks to the fact that being poor was and is expensive. You know, if you are living kind of marginally from job to job and payday to payday, things that might be wrong with you go unfixed and they compound over time. And poor farm records and poor farm life make that very clear that a tooth that probably should have been pulled has now created an abscess and that abscess is making you physically ill um, because you didn't have the dollar fifty you needed to have it pulled six months ago, um, you know. Or if you have a diet at home that's based of mostly just cornmeal and you know back fat, like you know pork fat, uh, the chances of you having a well-developed childhood, you know, body and physique are low, and that will span out over the course of a whole lifetime to making your bones and your body sicker and weaker than they need to be. And so people made the connection between 
food and health and being able to self-support. But recognizing that connection doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always a success make. Um, but there is definitely some recognition of that that's reflected in the historical record. Yeah, it's interesting to think about echoes of that conversation with, you know, SNAP benefits and uh, yeah. food stamps today. Yep. Um, it really is. What was the image of or what was the perception of nutrition at the time? Like, you know, if they're talking, if they're advocating for a more nutritious meal, what did they think? What did they think that oh. entailed back then? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, they I mean, they really had some fascinating ideas about it. There, there is one school of thought that um, firmly believed that the mushier the vegetable, the better that if you really rendered it down just about as boiled as it could be, like a 40-minute boil on a, on pieces of cabbage, we're talking about, you know, you don't really need teeth to chew that at that point. Um, so they, they were sometimes into very heavily boiled food without a lot of seasoning. So, so this, this would be my grandmother, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like I'll kind of hold back on the salt and pepper. Um, they... They liked this sort of meat and potatoes diet that was pretty common in the United States. They did not enjoy a lot of immigrant food ways. Um, so that's always, you don't see a lot of uh, pasta on, you know, poor farm tables, just like you wouldn't have seen any pasta on American tables until about 1920 and 30. Um, it's very... Uh, it, it's, it, it can be regional. You know, I found some kohlrabi being served in, uh, in poor farms in Wisconsin because German immigrants grew kohlrabi at home. And so they ate it. Um, but they cook it, they cook the hell out of everything. Uh, that's a very common issue. Um, but soft foods, uh, unseasoned foods, they, they thought those were pretty good. And they, you know, they preserve fruit in sugar. So they make jams and jellies, they pickle a lot of things, so there's a lot of vinegar. Um, I think people probably got quite a hefty dose of sodium, and that is true at the poor farm, but also at home. Like, you know, people who salted their pork, for example, in big barrels and used that as their preservation system, it was a very common occurrence. Uh, lots of sausages, uh, things of that nature. So maybe not the most appetizing plate necessarily for us today, um, but you know, the whole sort of point of that article is that if the farm on the poor farm is a good one and the garden is good, then typically the, the stuff that went on plates for residents at least had good nutritious balance. You know, they, they did understand like vegetables and fruit and meat and carbs are satisfying meals, um, even if they couldn't quite articulate what about them was nutritious until, you know, into the early 1900s. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of information comes from your uh, body. The fact that so many ethnic cuisines have complete proteins as like their staple implies that you know, yes. we're picking up on something even without uh, nutrition studies. But um, yeah, it's interesting you talk about ethnic foods. I mean, the conversation in America historically was uh, by social reformers was a lot of resistance to ethnic cuisine, both because it was seen as uh, dividing an already heterogeneous country. You know, we want to get people on the same page so they can be Americans. And also partly because it was seen as bad in some way that, you know, Mexican food, Spanish food, Italian food, that these kinds of things, uh, you know, 
inflame the passions and the senses, and they're not as nutritious, and that we ought to teach people how to eat properly. So it's interesting that then, again, I mean, it makes sense when doctors are advocating in an institutional setting that the kinds of food they're going to recommend are, you know, what we think of nowadays as, uh, you know, the standard American diet, the, the SAD, as nutritionists call it. Yes. Yeah, it is. A, it, it, I think it probably in many cases looked sad on the plate. But yeah, you know, a lot of those a lot of those food reforms that targeted immigrants as part of the kind of assimilation or the Americanization process are, you know, they're very discriminatory and some of them are very, they're very racially based, um, you know, racial stereotypes of, um, you know, Mexican-Americans, for example, Mexicans as being sort of hot-headed or hot-blooded and it's, you know, they eat spicy food and so then they have a temper it's like, well, that's not how any of this works, <laughs> but you're using, you know, you can see them taking the stereotype they believe in and using food as a piece of sort of false evidence in that component, like in, in building that stereotype. Um, they do it to Italians. They think that it, because Italian ingredients um, were expensive in the United States, things like olive oil, uh, Parmesan cheese, uh, balsamic vinegar, it was imported because we didn't really make it here, but they wanted it. Um, they made it stretch a really long way. But when reformers looked at it and said, you're already poor, I don't know why you're spending this much of your food budget on this oil when you can get, you know, perfectly good sort of vegetable oil down the street. It's like, well, that's not what we eat. That's not what we use. It doesn't taste the same. And we recognize today it doesn't have the same health benefits and properties. Um, but the continual efforts to strip some of those things away are, are very um, counterproductive, as it turns out. My dogs are protecting me from the FedEx delivery. As oh, usual. that's good of them. Yeah, they, they're waging a long-term war against that evil truck that comes by. But see, it works every time because you will be safe and he will leave. I, I, have, I, have, I haven't been eaten once, you know, and, I know. and I'm so ungrateful about it. They do their best yep. and I yell at them about it. It's, yell at them, yeah. <laughs> they're unappreciated martyrs for the, <laughs> the cause. Um, so, I mean, it seems like these farms were pretty successful, or at least in some cases were, but... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're essentially non-existent now. So what stopped? Why did they sort of peter out? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, the success is always measured, is difficult to measure. Um, I, I think I talk a little bit, I think it's somewhere in the book manuscript that, you know, they're meant to keep people alive until it's time for people to die. And then they provide them a safe place to do that. And they, those two things are not, cross purposes. That's just the sort of utilitarian nature of the, of the institution itself. Um, so they, they do work in the sense that they do not let a bunch of people wander around communities, homeless and sort of begging for aid, but they fall out of favor in stages. So there is a, there's one stage that takes place before the Great Depression in the early 1900s, where counties decide to institute and implement direct aid payments instead of putting their money into the institution. So they, they sort of do a cost analysis, and this is especially true in counties with small populations and small populations in the poor farm, that it would just be cheaper to just give those people money. <laughs> they just pay their rent, just buy them groceries just pay some like pay someone to rent them a room and it would be cheaper than the infrastructure required to take care of 10 people at a poor farm. 
So we see some of the smaller institutions just kind of transition to direct aid before the depression. And then the depression is kind of a watershed moment because I think what we might expect is that New Deal programs will take people out of the institution, but that's not actually immediately true. In the short term, like in the early 1930s, poor farms exploded in population because people didn't have anywhere to go. They were out of work. They couldn't pay rent. They didn't know what else to do. Um, there are accounts of whole families showing up at the poor farm or people dropping off grandma at the poor farm because they have to go somewhere else and work and they can't take her. Um, these kind of heart-wrenching decisions that people are making. And counties run out of direct aid money quickly. So they can't just keep paying people's rent because they don't have any money to put toward that. So in the short term, poor farms filled up in the 1930s. And then as some of those New Deal programs kick in, um, you know, putting people to work, uh, providing people with different aid options, you start to see the able-bodied leave again and go back out. And then when Social Security kicks in, it has a very specific line item in it about poor farms that is often overlooked. But you couldn't accept Social Security and live in a public institution, so if you were eligible for that money, you could not accept the money and stay in a county facility. So counties looked around in their poor farm and thought, okay, well, how many of these people are eligible for federal money? And it, as it turns out, it was usually quite a few. And so they started deciding like, okay, what do we have to have nearby to get these people like off our payroll and get them their federal money, and then we don't have to pay for them anymore. So they shuffle them around. Uh, they send them to boarding houses. They send them to privately operating nursing homes, which are new, um, to take advantage of that Social Security money. Um, and who they're left with is a much smaller number of people who are perhaps uh, infirm in some way or disabled in some way, but not old enough to start collecting Social Security um, or people who are, for some other reason, ineligible. And at that point, by the late 1930s and early 1940s, that process causes a lot of county poor farms to close their doors. Um, what's interesting is that some of them hang on way longer than has kind of historically been recognized. And the ones that hang on through the 50s and 60s tended to morph into county nursing homes. Because the people who remained inside were the types of people that today we would associate with needing a nursing home style setting. Um, you know, people who are perhaps bedridden, people who are um, disabled in some way, uh, people who are dealing with uh, issues like senility or maybe dementia, uh, who need to be perhaps more contained. Um, speaking of Foucault, you know, like. <laughs> potentially like controlling those people a little better. Um, and so there is a transition that happens where sometimes counties will take what was the poor farm and they will evolve it into either a county hospital or a county nursing home. And so they, they make that change. Um, but there are, interestingly enough, a few still open today. Really? Um, where are those? Yeah. Uh, there are a bunch of them in the Midwest, which is the region of the country that had the most poor farms to start with. 
Um, but in Ohio, there are a handful left that are operating today as uh, county homes. Some of them, and they're small, they don't house a lot of people, um, and they don't often house a ton of people full time, like people who live there. Um, but they do day programs. So they might have a handful of residents that stay there um, overnight and spend all their time there. And then they will have people who come for like adult daycare during the day. And there are more social programs, you know, things that we would expect today. There is occupational therapy, there are activities, there are visitors, um, you know, but they are some of them still in the same buildings that were constructed to be the poor farm in the early 1900s. They are on a farm. The farm is usually no longer farmed by the county, but rented out to a farmer and the county takes the rent money. Um, so they do still in like smattering of places exist and they are doing very similar things to what they did 175 years ago. That's really interesting. I wonder, I, I mean, I'm sure you're looking into it, but I'd be really interested to th- think about what the difference is. It, was it just because like the calculus never worked out if they were always making these sorts of calculations about what's the best and cheapest thing for the county? Um, or if there was something else going on, I mean, you know, as somebody who grew up in America, I'm suspicious that people everywhere in all counties were clear eyed enough to think about whether or not it was just cheaper to give people who are poor cash or whether, <laughs> you know, there's such a resistance to doing that in so much of America. It is such an anathema to what we are taught about how things work. Um, and it's important. You know, it's small amounts of cash. Sure. It's it's, you know, it's, it's very small payments, but yeah, part of what goes on too, is that counties for a long time, counties autonomously ran their poor farm and, you know, the state would send an inspector and the inspector would come in and be like, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and you need to fix this. And the counties would say, well, make me, you don't pay for this, (laughs) make me fix it. And there was this loggerheads and they're right. You know, there was no state money. There was no federal money. And so there was no state or federal control. And it's why you get this big kind of patchwork quilt of what poor farms were like and whether they were okay places or not okay places. There's no centralized anything. There's no oversight or management that goes beyond the county government. But over time, what happens is this shuffling of who is responsible and who is paying. So there is, you know, today our welfare system is this kind of hodgepodge of state and federal money that gets pooled into different programs. And so when that starts to happen, especially in the 1960s, the counties that still had institutions then become kind of mixed into that. And they, they get some state money and they get some federal money And so then whether it's, you know, who they're taking care of and how they're taking care of them starts to respond to bigger national changes and trends in a way that was not true previously because there was no outside money coming in. Why was Um, was it the responsibility of counties ever to do it? I mean, the federal government makes a certain amount of sense. States in our weird federated system make sense. Cities even kind of make sense to me, but county seems like an odd size to to be responsible for this. Yeah, so it has to do with the very sort of um, the genesis of state and county government in the United States. Um, so it's actually written into a lot of state constitutions 
at the very beginning of statehood that the responsibility and care for the poor and dependent falls on the county. And so they start the process of governing with that responsibility in mind. And a lot of it has to do with the way things used to be settled um, as indigenous people were pushed out of spaces and land was organized for, you know, mostly white settlers. They, their first form of governance was usually the county. And so that becomes the kind of like touchstone that, that early Americans used as their form of local democratic government. And they don't replace it with anything for a really long time. They are kind of left to their own devices. Um, and then once they get, once they get that control and they're used to having it, they are fairly hesitant to give it up to any larger entity. Um, and they're, they, they're critical that someone in a state capital would know what was best for people in their county. And that doesn't really matter how big geographically the state was or how small people were very skeptical of the fact that someone could come from the outside and know what was best. And so they really hang on to that local control because the county is this kind of like original form of self-governance at the local level. Um, and it's very personal. Well, see, now, you know, you, now that's sounding more American. <laughs> yeah. That part sounds more familiar. And, you know, people falling through cracks and it being kind of picked up by the county you know, that continues to this day. I mean, here we are in the valley. Um, there's lots of colonias, the sort of neighborhoods that aren't incorporated into any town. And what limited ser public services they get are at the county level. Mm -hmm. So that, that is still a thing. Was there a, uh, was there a poor farm here down in the valley in any of our counties? No, there was not. Um, in fact, there are there are very, very few social services provided by any valley counties um, well into the 20th century. Or indeed. Uh, so, uh, you know, <laughs> so people. Yeah. I mean, there are I had a student a few years ago do a really interesting master's thesis about mental health care in the valley and mental health care and poor farms go together to a certain extent, because a lot of times when when states couldn't take someone into their asylum, they stayed at the county level and the county had to take care of them. And state institutions filled really quickly because there was this huge demand. Counties wanted to offload people to the state because then the state would pay for it. Um, so as soon as the state opened a new, you know, mental hospital, for example, it would fill like overnight. Um, counties would just flood with applications for people. Um, but down here, there is no mental hospital. There are no poor farms. There are a couple of uh, like well-meaning kind of charity people who open homes to try to provide homeless people with shelter. Um, but they are not, and they do get some county money for that actually, but it's more, I would describe it more almost like taking in a border than it is running a legitimate almshouse or poor farm because it is not entirely county supported. Like it is not a county run and managed institution. It's just some nice people who are trying to do a good thing and are getting a little bit of money from the county to sort of help them do that good thing for other people. Um, but that's about all there is here. And there are private charities. Um, you know, people got assistance to the parish churches sometimes when they needed it and neighbors and family. Um, but there is almost no 
local social welfare infrastructure here that we could identify as being sort of publicly funded or organized. Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's a whole interesting (laughs) uh, history as to why our area has been kind of underserved historically, but it seems like in any county, this would be a really interesting, I mean, this is the kind of thing that calls out for local history projects to document their poor farm that they may have had in their county see what kinds of testimonies they can find, what sorts of archival records. So, uh, you know, after after you deal with all of your deadlines now, you should expand on this and uh, launch a national a national uh, project. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to use a lot of local histories. Poor farms are very popular with local historians, and they're very popular with genealogists. Um, and so a lot of the digitizing of records that exists for county-level stuff is thanks to genealogists who are, um, you know, doing the legwork that it takes to make stuff like that happen. And so uh, I'm, I am indebted to them enormously because they have made a lot of records. They have saved a lot of records. They have digitized some records. Um, and they are uh, often very well aware of like where the poor farm was or what was going on. Um, because it it is a very important piece of local history for people all over the country who are invested in that as a subject. Sure. Well, um, as we discussed at the beginning of this, uh, I like to, for this podcast, also ask my guests to bring some kind of food to share with everyone. I mean, ideally, please go to the house of everyone who's listening to this podcast and share some food with them. <laughs> but, you know, when you have some time on your schedule. In the meanwhile, though, uh, we can virtually do this. And I asked you to bring uh, a recipe or food to talk about here. So can you uh, tell us what you brought for, to share with us today? I can. I brought a recipe for chocolate mayonnaise cake. Go um, on. Which is, <laughs> which is always makes people's face crunch up. Um but I, so I do not know the origin of this recipe. Like I do not know the inevitable woman who created this thing. My mom used to make this for birthdays and other celebrations. And to me, doing a whole bunch of cooking with mayonnaise is very Midwestern. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Ohio. I went to school all over the Midwest and it's people joke about ranch dressing in the Midwest a lot, but I, to me, the odd condiment of choice is mayonnaise, not just to put on a sandwich or something like that, but we put it in other stuff. So we put it in, uh, like I have a recipe for spinach and artichoke dip that is mayonnaise based and like, it's a warm dip. It's just, it's, it shows up in all kinds of very strange places, but in baking, what initially looks like a weird idea is actually a shortcut. Because mayonnaise is just eggs and oil. Sure. And eggs and oil go into baked goods. So instead of using eggs and oil in this cake, you just slap like a cup and a half of mayonnaise in there and then move on with your cake baking. Um, and so I have a bunch of baking recipes. This was, I like this is my favorite because this is the one people normally, it's the chocolate part that freaks them out. Like we're going to put chocolate and mayonnaise together. But it's a really delicious and moist cake. And it holds moisture very well. So it you you really have to overbake it to dry this one out. Um, but I use mayonnaise. Like I have a banana muffin recipe I use mayonnaise with. Like I have mayonnaise in my refrigerator and I never put it on a sandwich. <laughs> it is only for cooking other things. Like you coat like a dry chicken breast in it and then you like, you know, put some Parmesan on the outside and you're done here. Like this is a meal. And so in the Midwest, we use the mayonnaise in 
a whole bunch of unexpected ways with great consequences, just delightful. So if you make the cake, you won't be disappointed. I mean, I'll try it. That sounds good. You know, my family has a, I'll share it with the listeners at some point, a cottage cheese pancake recipe, which similarly Mm. puts people off. But uh, for some of the same reasons, it actually really helps, keeps it moist and really good. And I mean, people put, if you had said sour cream, I think people would be a little bit closer. And if you, and you know, so once you, it takes a bit to walk to it, but I think that sounds amazing. Hopefully people will try it and tell us what they think. Yeah. And it's, it's also very confusing when you make it for the first time. And I put this in the recipe so that everyone doesn't panic. It's a really runny cake batter. So if you are used to making a cake out of a box and you're used to that consistency, this mayonnaise cake has a a looser consistency before you bake it. Um, And so you have to be ready for that. (laughs) Otherwise you're going to (laughs) think like I have screwed this up somehow. This doesn't look like a cake. This doesn't make any sense. Um, but it does. So persevere, put it in the uh, oven. That's good. It's important to have uh, warnings in recipes, I think, for people, uh, you know, just so that peop- you have some kind of handhold to know you're going in the right direction. I have to remind myself sometimes I don't make it all that often. I mean, obviously now, like, I, you know, I'm not feeding anyone except my immediate household here. And we have no reason to be making cakes for two people. So I haven't made it in a while, but as I was looking at the recipe, I was like, oh gosh, I can't forget to remind everyone this is going to be really runny and it'll look really weird because it's been a little while since I have had an occasion to take the cake out. Yeah. I mean, the the idea that being stuck at home um, and only teaching via video is not a reason to make cakes more often is incomprehensible to me. But other than that, uh, (laughs) this has been a great conversation. I just want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Where can people find you um, if they want to learn more about your work? Uh, Email is the easiest. Um, Visit me on email and our faculty, uh, the history department's faculty webpage has uh, all kinds of good information. The article that we were talking about today is available. um, Food culture and society has an online version. So um, people can find that there and here probably in the next, I would say nine months, uh, the University of Illinois Press will have uh, my second book out and ready for purchase. That's great. Yeah. So I'll link to that article as well as your first book. And then when uh, this one is racing up the charts, you can come in and talk to us again. I will. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ian. Bye. That was my conversation with Megan Burke. Links are in the show notes, including a link to the article on poor farms we were discussing and to her first book. If you subscribe to Thought About Food, rate the podcast, and especially write us a review, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have thoughts about this episode or you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 